welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello, and welcome to episode five of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, I'm really excited to welcome Caitlin Barrett. Caitlin is the founder and CEO of Love Mercy, a not-for-profit that has been working in communities in northern Uganda since 2010. Caitlin's been awarded the UNSW Young Alumni of the Year Award and has been a finalist in the charitable sector of the Telstra Businesswoman of the Year Awards. Caitlin, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. So Caitlin and I have known each other a few years now, and I've been quietly in awe of all of her incredible achievements with Love Mercy. It's, it's an amazing organization, and I've, I've really loved watching it from afar, so I'm very excited to learn a bit more about it today and, and um, how it came to be the incredibly successful organization that it is. So Caitlin, can you start by taking us back to 2010 when you founded Love Mercy, and, and talk to us about what led you to establish the organisation. Yeah, sure. So um, our story is, is a very rich story, I guess, with lots of different kind of um, versions. But I'll tell you my version um, from my perspective this morning. So I guess um, in 2010, I had been studying a degree um, in development studies at UNSW and I had really loved that subject and I'd been drawn to um, the NGO sector and um, learning about that kind of space and what worked and what didn't work. And it was during that time in my second year of uni that I met two individuals, um, both Olympic athletes, so both runners, um, Eloise Wellings, who's an Australian Olympian, and Julius Achon, who's a Ugandan Olympian. And their stories, um, their life stories are both um, incredibly interesting. So both have um, battled with injuries and different heartaches in their life, but basically had been in the same place at the same time and met in Portland in the USA um, as part of their training and connected. And Eloise ended up going and visiting Uganda um, to meet Julius's family, um, who was made up of an adopted family. So Julius was a former child soldier, um, an Olympian, as I said, and he had made his way to the United States in his running career and was supporting about 18 children who he had adopted um, who had all suffered as a result of a 20-year civil war that went on in northern Uganda. So when I met these two individuals, they were basically just sending over funds when they could um, to support his family and to support his community and Having studied development studies, I kind of put my hand up and said, look, um, I don't think you're going to be able to send enough money to solve all of the issues. Um, So we should think about starting something that can have a more sustainable impact. And so that's kind of basically where the inspiration and where the idea came from, just meeting these two individuals who were already doing something to try to help. 
in 2010, we all went over to Uganda and we met with Julius's community and um, we basically said, look, we want to do something to help. What do you think um, could be helpful? And we just sat with them and came up with a, a bit of a plan for the community. And so Julius is still very instrumental in that way. So he kind of acts as a spokesperson for his community. Um, he's kind of the link between between us and them. So anything that we kind of think might work or might not work always goes through Julius. He's always the touch point of, um, you know, well, in Western culture that might work, but in Ugandan culture it won't. Um, so he's kind of, I guess, has the end say um, based on what he knows will be best for his community. Um, and Eloise acts as an ambassador. Um, she uses her running career to raise awareness for Love Mercy and for the work that we do. So most recently she was on the Gold Coast for the Commonwealth Games. Um, and I don't know if you saw, she she was one of the athletes that her photo went viral at the end of the 10K race. So her and the other Australian female athletes waited for um, the last uh, athlete to finish the race. And that, that kind of photo was very symbolic of um, the whole Commonwealth Games, I guess. So Eloise uses moments like that and, yeah, her, her platform as an athlete to raise awareness for what we do in Uganda. What a great team. That's, that's fantastic to hear. So yeah. that's sort of a good segue into a, a question I wanted to ask you. Operating in Uganda, I would imagine, and perhaps you don't, but I would imagine that you get asked a lot what – what leads you to operate a not-for-profit on the other side of the world as opposed to in our region of the world? Um, so can, can you sort of explain why you've stayed in Uganda and, and what specifically about the Ugandan context really draws you to it? Definitely when we started, we had people and, and have continued to have people um, question why Uganda and, and a lot of times it's from quite a critical space so there's this idea of oh we have need here in our own backyard and why would you go and help a community that's so far away where you could be helping people in Australia and for me um, I understand that thinking I understand that there is obviously need here in Australia but for us um, we were answering the need that was placed directly in front of us so we we had this um contact in this community in Julius who was literally saying hey I've had 11 people in my village die from famine in the last six months can you send me a hundred dollars to buy a bag of rice and so the level of need for me like having people literally die because they didn't have enough food I mean that that just doesn't happen in Australia I know that people do struggle in this country but the level of need is different and the welfare system is different and the structures that can kind of, you know, act as a bit of a safety net for people are just not there in Uganda. Um, so we were presented and confronted with a very real and immediate need in Uganda and so we just chose to respond to that and say yes, um, just the same as many organisations are set up here in Australia to help the need that people find here. Um, yeah, our story was, was just led us to Uganda, I guess. Mm. That makes so much sense that, that, yeah, that's fantastic to hear. So moving on a little, when we talk about development in African countries, it often seems to me that we, 
we have this tendency to refer to Africa as this big homogenous entity. Um, yep. I always cringe a little bit when I, when people refer to Africa as a country. Um, and it, my experience in development over the years is as much localization as possible, the better. You know, when we recognize how incredibly different one community is from another, we're yep. probably going to have better outcomes. So, so how do you deal with with misunderstandings about the African continent and the Ugandan context and how do you try to educate people on that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's changing with the younger generation and with globalisation and social media and the internet, but I think um, people do think that Africa is this big, homogenous, faraway place that has the same issues and it's full of, you know, war and famine and disease and um, it's just not true. And for us, we learnt very early from day one that communities that are living right next door to each other are completely different. So when we um, began our Sense for Seeds program, which is a, a micro-loan agriculture program, we, we went to Julius's community called Awaki and we basically sat with them and workshopped this idea and got their input. And at that point in 2010, they said, um, thanks but no thanks. We don't, we don't want to be part of a, a loan program um, they were used to receiving government hands out, handouts, so they were opposed to the idea of actually giving the seed back once they had harvested. Um, and that was obviously for us a core component of what makes our program sustainable. So we said, okay, that's fine. Um, we had another contact in a neighbouring village about 40 minutes away and we went to that community and we sat with them and workshopped the idea with them and they said we would love to be involved where can we start? So the the cultural difference and the mindset that was kind of so evidently different between those two communities that were literally neighbours, um, immediately we went, okay, this, this solution is not a one-size-fits-all solution and that's within the same, you know, sub-county in Uganda, let alone the differences that we would find between the north and the south of the country which are vastly different, you know, you only need to drive from Kampala in the south up to the north to see how starkly different the, the country is, let alone how different the, the whole continent is. Um, so we have started to expand into other countries by partnering with other organisations who want to implement Sense for Seeds um, in their, their part of the world. Um, but we've done that in a way that we provide the training and the learning um, and what we have learned, but we always start with the caveat of this program will look different for you compared to how it's looked for us because for us it's different in, in every parish that we operate in. That's a really interesting story and thank you for, for acknowledging that sometimes communities don't, don't want what we're offering them and I, I, think, uh, I think a lot of not-for-profits are reluctant to admit that. And I think that's really, really great that you do. And then I, you know, it's so evident how many communities love the Sense for Seeds program and other programs and have really thrived with those. So it is so important that we recognize that local diversity. So you mm. mentioned the Sense for Seeds project. Um, yep. You have been doing that for seven years now. And I know that recently you did quite a comprehensive evaluation into the impacts of that program. And I had a fantastic time reading your impact report. It was really, really fascinating. 
So can you can you talk about how it feels to get those results? And is it reassuring to know that that what you're doing is working? Yes, it is. So um, we we ended up actually going back to that initial community that initially said no, we don't want to be part of the program. Um, and we took one of the leaders from from Bar Village where we we piloted the program in 2010 with 100 women. We took the leader um, of that village back to Awaki and she actually explained why she thought the program worked and why it was a good idea. Um, and just having that local kind of knowledge and that local reassurance meant that they did actually say, okay, we want to give it a try. Um, and so in that region now we have over 5,000 women who are part of the program. Um, and so we did an impact study in February. We, we partnered with an amazing organisation called Huber Social um, based in Sydney and they uh, have developed a way of measuring impact that's based on well-being. So sometimes people think of the world, word well-being and they think, you know, yoga and making sure you get enough sleep and, and those are all important aspects of our well-being. But if you think about well-being in terms of our physical, emotional and psychological health and our capability and our opportunity to live our best life um that's kind of a person's overall well-being looking at the entirety of their life and so we partnered with huber because they have developed a way to actually measure those things so from the start of sense for seeds in 2010 we knew that it was working because we would sit with the women and we would talk to them about why it was working and what they were doing with their loan and what they were doing with their income we could see with our eyes that it was working in terms of um, the communities were slowly looking healthier, they were better dressed, they were taking more care in their appearance, the children looked happier and healthier. Um, but the elements that I really wanted to measure, I was finding difficult to measure. So we could we could go and have these great chats with the women, but it's difficult to convert those conversations into data. Um, and we could measure things like how many kilograms of seeds did you harvest, um, how many, how much income did you earn, what did you spend that income on, and that, those were all great indicators of success. But we were finding it tricky to measure that empowerment factor and that that well-being factor. So in February with Huber, we took um, twelve hundred printed surveys over to Uganda. Um, the surveys were made up of 30 questions and each question mapped back to an element of a person's well-being. So questions like, um, I can provide for my family. And the answers were on a sliding scale of one to five because we're working with um, the majority of women who we work with are illiterate. Um, questions like, uh, my voice is important, um, my life is important, I don't have anything to be afraid of. My home is peaceful. Questions that capture that element of overall well-being, empowerment and feeling that sense of I'm actually providing for my family um, and my life matters. So for me that was a really career-defining moment, I think, to be able to map that data. And I was scared, to be honest. Like I was like what if we get there and we survey all these women and the results come out and show that it's not working? 
you know, would I be willing to say, okay, that's been a waste of 10 years. (laughs) Let's pull the program. Um, but luckily, well, not luckily, I guess, you know, it's, it's proof in the, in the data, but the, the data showed that the longer a woman was in the program, the higher her well-being was, and that actually trickled down to the rest of the community. So the communities where we have spent the longest, because we survey people who are not yet in the program as well, um, so an area where we've been the longest, the, the community's well-being was higher and it actually stepped down year by year. So the community where we've been in for seven years had the highest well-being. The community where we've been for six years had the second highest well-being and it stepped down like that. So we the data showed that time in the program correlated with well-being. Um, and so if we're looking at well-being as a measure of success, which we as an organisation have decided that we are, um, yeah, the data showed that that that's what Sense for Seeds is in doing is doing. It's increasing um, the well-being not only of the women who receive a seed loan, but of their communities as well. Congratulations on those results. That that's so inspiring to hear. And Thank you, you mentioned something interesting that a lot of the women you work with are illiterate. So could you just talk a bit more about how you overcome that challenge when yeah, you're collecting sure. data? Yeah. Um, so when I first met with the guys at Huber Social, um, we met uh, at the end of 2017 and um, they were just so awesome to work with. They were like, within two weeks, they were like, okay, let's get on a plane and go to Uganda and figure out how to do this. And originally they were like, well, we could just take a whole bunch of iPads or tablets or you know um and I was just kind of giggling behind my hand going yeah that's not gonna work (laughs) um and once we got there sure enough um over half the women were illiterate and so we had these paper-based surveys and and lead pencils um and some of especially the older women who we work with they were actually afraid to pick up the pencil because they'd never held a pencil before and so they're looking at this pencil and paper going, what What do I even do with this? And that was so confronting for me to go, like I knew that, that the literacy levels would be a challenge, but I didn't realise it would be that intense, that there would actually be fear around picking up a pencil. And so the first thing that we did in each session that we had, we actually taught the women how to hold a pencil and how to tick along the scale because they'd never made a mark on a, on a piece of paper before. And so sitting, the, the other thing that I noticed was a lot of the women who were kind of had the lowest literacy levels or had some kind of disability, like they were hearing impaired or vision impaired, they tended to always sit on the outside of the group. So there's a main group in the middle who were generally kind of coping okay. Um, and I made sure to, to spend most of my time during those sessions where we were collecting the data on the outskirts of the group because that's where most of the women who were really struggling were and just watching them um, try to write their name or have assistance in writing their name and and seeing their name on a piece of paper for the first time was was really moving. I can only imagine how how moving that was and I think you've made a really important point that 
we separate the genders when we're conducting research methodologies generally, and that that's really good because it gives women, you know, women are more likely to contribute uh, if they're in a room that's not dominated by men. Um, but more than that, there's also diversity within groups of women, and there are women that totally. are less likely to contribute than others. So how do we ensure that those women have a space that they feel safe and, and comfortable contributing? And you yep. sitting with them 100%. sounds like it would have really done that. I mean, I don't know how much me sitting with them helped, but just because I couldn't speak their language. So, but just kind of um, having that awareness when we were collecting the data, because we had a bunch of, we, we trained the most literate leaders in our pilot village of Bar um, to come out with us on each survey day to all the different areas and act as um, facilitators. So, we had a bunch of them who stuck with us for the week and, and just came out and went through that survey time and time again. And so just having that awareness of knowing where to direct them, so saying to them, look, the, the women who are sitting in the middle generally seem to be pretty okay and they help each other, um, but the ones who are sitting right on the outer, either they can't see or they can't hear or they, they're extremely low literacy levels. And so just being able to direct our facilitate, facilitators to the outskirts of the group meant that um, hopefully all of those voices were heard. Yeah, that makes sense. So I know that one of the findings of your impact evaluation was that having access to clean drinking water had the highest correlation or one of the highest correlations with improvements to wellbeing. And yeah. you responded to that by partnering with a not-for-profit called Water for Africa, which at this stage was solely working in Tanzania. And you've now worked with them to build and restore 12 wells in northern Uganda. Can you talk a bit about that partnership and, and why you decided that was a good partnership and how it's impacted upon your work? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, it sounds obvious when you say that one of the highest correlating factors to improved wellbeing is access to water, um, but seeing it in the numbers makes it quite real. So, the two, the, the two factors that correlated most highly with increased well-being was access to water and time spent in the Census Seeds program. So we figured our impact is one thing to be operating this Census Seeds program and expanding that, but if we can have um, an impact in terms of how close water sources are, then that will, will hopefully have a flow-on effect and actually increase um, the experience of Census Seeds as well. So what we found was women who were walking more than 10 kilometres a day to receive their water um, had lower wellbeing. So we um, have known the guys over at Water for Africa for a little while. They had joined us on a trip um, to Uganda in March last year before we'd even kind of started talking about a partnership. Um, but they had wanted to expand into somewhere else in Africa and we're just kind of doing a bit of ground research to figure out where that was and what that looked like. So once we got the survey results back that had this correlation with water, we knew that it was perfect timing for us to, to partner with someone who could help in that space. And so they were really keen and really eager. So I think the great thing about that partnership is that it's quite agile and it's moved really quickly. So, you know, it's, June now, we only did the research in, in February and we correlated the results in March and then kind of by May we'd, we'd started drilling 
these these new boreholes. So um, it's it's happened really fast, but it's it's been very um, deliberate and direct. So we haven't yet gotten to all twelve boreholes. We've we've drilled two of the the twelve that we're aiming to get to this year, um, and the guys are also doing um, a bit of a survey of the area to go around and see which boreholes need repairing because I'm sure as you know there's the kind of age-old story of an an organization goes into Africa somewhere and drills a borehole and then it breaks down and no one does anything about it so to repair a drill a a borehole that's already drilled um, and then have a kind of team that's aware of the issues of that particular borehole and ensure that it's still working can obviously be more cost-effective than having to go around and drill entirely new water sources. Um, so we're trying to do to to do both of those things where where necessary. And that reminds me of a really important point. We we had Jen Nelson on the show a few weeks ago, and she's the CEO of the Kokoda Track Foundation in Papua New Guinea. And we yep. spoke about how it's it's really easy for an organisation to go in and build a bit of infrastructure. You know, you can you can build a, a classroom or a well or whatever, but what's more difficult is staying there in the long term and actually yeah. committing to maintaining it and continuing to work with the community. And um, that's something I really like about Love Mercy is the really the, the continuity in your programs, I think, is yeah. really remarkable. It's interesting that you say that because um, as part of our, our collection of data, as well as the survey, we held focus groups in each area. And one of the questions that we asked the community was, are there any other organisations working here? And if so, what are they doing? And I was interested in one community because I knew that there were other organisations working there um, and I was interested to see what they said. And so we said, you know, are there any other NGOs here? And they said, no, it's just you guys. Um, And I kind of piped in and said oh who drilled that borehole over there um and they said oh well yeah like an NGO drilled that borehole but they've gone now and we probably won't see them again so I was just struck by that you know the community is so used to that already um that they actually said you know it's not like Love Mercy like we know that you keep coming back and for me that was so moving because I'm like oh okay so it is a different approach and I think that um, I think it's because our funding requirements can sometimes be so short-sighted. So we do things in funding cycles of three years if you're lucky to have three years. Um, and so a community goes, okay, well, they're here for three years and three years is not a long time in development. Um, like in development, we're actually in the business not just of you know, developing communities, but it's actually cultural change and it's shifting people's mindsets and it's working with communities to have a more sustainable mindset. And that takes a long time. That's generational almost. So, you know, the shift that we've seen in in almost 10 years is remarkable, but I don't think the system is set up to enable that to happen all the time. I completely agree with you. And I think what's interesting here, though, is there's sort of this paradox between recognising that we will do the most good if we commit to staying in the long term, but we also don't want communities to become totally reliant on us and unable Mm. to sustain themselves without us there. So that's 
that's what I wanted to ask you about the Sense for Seeds program. It's a, it's a livelihoods development program, essentially. Is the long-term goal that the women that are involved in the program won't need the involvement of Love Mercy five or ten years from now? Like, where do you see your role yeah. transitioning into for them? Yeah, for sure. So I might just take a step back and explain the program in a little more detail because that will help to um, answer that question. So basically um, women are selected by their local leaders in terms of their level of need um, and they're placed into groups of between 30 and 100 women that it, that's kind of geographically based. They elect leaders and then those leaders um, work with coordinators of districts so our staff in Uganda then go and conduct training so they do agricultural workshops and they also do village savings and loans um, workshops and then each woman receives a loan of 30 kilos of seeds of their choice so the community decides what type of seed they want to plant this year we've done soya beans and sesame we plant in two different seasons to kind of ensure against the risk of losing one crop due to drought or pests. Um, so we distribute soybeans in, in March and sesame in June. Um, they have access to our agriculturalists every step of the way. They have group meetings with their leaders to make sure everyone's going okay during the planting season. And then they harvest their crop. Um, and once they harvest their crop, they return the initial loan back to us. And then the following year, they're able to come again and request another loan of the same crop or of a different crop, or they, if they decide that they don't need another loan, um, we pass that seed on to the next woman. So in one sense, that one loan is used again and again and again each year, either by the same woman or by a new participant. Part of that impact assessment that we did was to actually see at what point in the program does a woman's well-being peak and therefore after that time there's actually not any benefit to receiving another loan. Um, and what we think that data has shown is that at about five years, um, after being in the program for five years, so receiving a loan five years in a row, um, her well-being starts to plateau so the, the impact is not as great. So with that data we've now decided, okay, um, between three and five years is the ideal time frame for somebody to receive a loan. And so after five years, what happens? So um, at the moment, we're, we're working with our local staff to figure out what that looks like. But basically, at the beginning of each woman's fifth year in the program, she's told um, this is the last loan that you're eligible to receive and this is some ways that you can maximise your involvement in this final year. So whether it's we encourage them to use their income to invest in livestock if they haven't yet done so. So once you harvest, use your income to buy a chicken or a goat or, or a bull if you can afford it. Um, and we also encourage them just in some more sustainable thinking. So thinking like next year you're not eligible for this loan. So what, what are you going to plant next year? Do you need to set aside extra um, seeds to make sure that once the rainy season starts in March, you have something to plant then? Um, or do you need to save extra income now so that you can buy extra crops at that time? So the idea is that after that fifth year, they are 
in a much better place than where they were when they started. They've invested into livestock and they've begun to think about the future because these are communities that lived through through two decades of civil war who every day were just thinking, what am I going to eat today? Am I going to make it through today? So changing that mindset of, hey, let's start thinking ahead to March next year where you're going to need to plant crops. What are you going to do about it today? So even just that that mindset shift probably takes at least five years to get into the habit. So it is definitely our aim that after five years um, these women won't need us anymore, the community won't need us anymore and we can move on to somewhere else. And it sounds as though a big part of this then is increasing the financial literacy of the women that are involved in the program. Financial literacy is such a buzzword lately, but I think with the rise of things like um, microcredit and and loans programs and that it's become increasingly evident that, you know, when we give people a loan of any kind, we have to make sure that that they know how to manage that money effectively. And, And it sounds as though financial literacy is really important in your work as well. It definitely is. And we probably don't talk about it as much as what we talk about, the seed component of what we do, but we do have um, village savings and loan trainers who work with us and who at the same time as we provide agricultural workshops, we provide these um, financial literacy training days. So, and again, given that the context that we work in where 50% of the women are illiterate, it's it's a very difficult thing to train in. Um, but, you know, how do you Basically, the way the groups work is they're given all the equipment that they need, so a secure um, savings box and um, like a record book of who's in in the groups. And then every Saturday, the women bring a minimum of 1,000 shillings, which is about 20 cents Australian, um, and they save into that group. So they can then draw on those loans um, in case of emergency. There's also a welfare fund that if anybody needs like emergency loan can't necessarily pay back with interest. Um, it's like a kind of community insurance program. Um, and then, yeah, in that way you, you can either borrow when you need to, but at the same time if you're saving, you're earning interest because the group then divides the interest equally um, depending on how much you've saved. So it is actually quite, I mean, I'm not great at maths anyway, but it is quite tricky um, to figure out, especially when you're in, in that context. But yeah, our trainers are, are onto it and they're, they're really great. And, you know, you're exactly right in that we're providing these seed loans, which in turn enables the women to earn income. But if they don't know what to do with that income or how to manage it wisely, um, it's, a, it's a missed opportunity. On that point, how important is access to markets when you're growing seeds and crops how important is it that the women have a market that they can actually sell those crops at yeah really important so one of the the issues that kind of keeps this area in subsistence farming is that the roads are so bad um, there's no transport there's no money for transport so accessing a, a larger wholesale market for these women is really difficult so at the moment they have local markets um where they sell their produce, and that's that's great. But our aim is to get get these communities from just subsistence farming to something that's actually going to be more profitable. Um, so to give you an example of that, at the moment we're in the right at the end of our sesame seed distribution, and 
the number of women that we have in the program this year is 13,800. And so we're distributing um, five kilos of sesame seeds to each of those women. So that's a lot of sesame seeds. And this year we've actually struggled to find enough seeds to distribute to the women. So we've we've bought all of Lyra District has sold out of sesame because we've bought it all to, to distribute to our women. Um, but the reason that that's happened is more recently there's been um, kind of larger buyers from China and America who have come in early in the season and bought a whole lot of sesame seeds um, to turn into oil or to export from Uganda um, to America or, or to China. So there's a shortage of those seeds, which come harvest time will work in our women's favour um, because hopefully, you know, the market will be will be in a much better position for them then. And so part of our program is actually educating on the timing of when you sell your crop and, and how you do that. So if you sell at the same time when everyone else is selling, you're not going to get as much money per kilo, whereas if you can store um, your crop a bit longer and hold on to it, um, you're going to be better off in the long term. So we're in the process now of figuring out how can we um, link out the women in our program with some of those those buyers and whether whether or not that's going to be a good idea or not depending on how much those buyers are willing to pay per kilo. So that's going to be an interesting um, development over the next few months. Mm, it will be. You mentioned that infrastructure development in the area is not good. Do you have any thoughts on why why maybe it's the, the likes of the World Bank and others are not in there building the roads and those networks? Do you have any thoughts on why that is? Um, for, for that part of the world, because the war went on for so long and was so destructive, the rest of the country developed um, at a much higher rate. So southern Uganda... Um, Eastern and Western Uganda all have much better developed infrastructure, but the North just got completely left behind. And there is still stigma within the country of, you know, well, the North is just backwards and there's no point going up there because everyone's a rebel or, you know, it's just um, it's just been left behind. So it's only more recently that the government, I mean, in the 10 years that we've been there, it has improved drastically. I remember the first trip that we took, the drive took us 14 hours because the roads were so horrific and now it takes a cruisy six hours. So um, it is improving. Um, but especially, you know, where we're working is so remote, um, you know, even just getting a grater to go out and grate the roads is, you know, a massive deal. So it's just, it's just at a much slower rate than the rest of the country. I think that makes a lot of sense about the effect that the war has had on development and there's those amazing statistics about how for every year of civil war it's something like 20 years of economic development, mm. which is just insane. So, yeah, hopefully in the, next, in the next decade or so infrastructure development does catch up in that part of the country because it sounds as though it would have a great impact on your work. Okay, so changing the subject a little bit, Love Mercy has also established the Christina Health Centre. And to date, I believe you've treated over 20,000 patients, which is, is just an amazing statistic. How do you ensure that a clinic like this one, where your patients aren't paying much of a fee for consultation, how do you ensure that the clinic can remain financially sustainable? 
Well, that's the million-dollar question, literally. <laughs> um, so to be completely honest, like the difference between the two programs that we run is quite profound. So Sense for Seeds basically runs itself. Um, we're working on a model that would see Sense for Seeds being completely self-funded, so it wouldn't rely on any fundraising from Australia at all to run, whereas the clinic um, is much more difficult to fund because it is more – it's a service um, essentially – but you're providing a service in a place where the income is extremely low, um, it's really tricky. So our our kind of vision is that the clinic would be completely sustainable by 2020. Um, and as much as I'm trying to be an optimist, I, I don't know that that's going to be the case. Um, at the moment, we have partnered with um, a USAID program called the Voucher Plus program. So our clinic was selected to start providing maternity services, which was a massive leap for us and quite a scary one. And one that we here in Sydney, our Sydney team was really reluctant to make, but our Ugandan team were really excited and were kind of pushing us forward into that space. Um, but the way that it works is the US government is um, funding a program called Voucher Plus, which basically they are aiming to have 20,000 women deliver in clinics in Uganda by 2020, um, women who would otherwise have delivered at home. So our clinic was selected to run this program and the way that it works is um, women are means tested and kind of the, the most vulnerable and poorest women are eligible to purchase a voucher for um, a very cheap price, which basically entitles them to four antenatal visits at our at our facility, their labour and delivery, and then postnatal care. And so, the cost to the woman is very very small. And each woman who goes through this Voucher Plus program, um, USAID funds all of her costs through our clinic. So. For us, that's been a major funding source that has helped us get closer to that point where we're not relying on fundraising. Um, and so that's been great, but, you know, what happens after 2020 when that program either may not be refunded by USAID, you know, it's not something that we can kind of concretely rely on. So, yeah, in answer to your question, it's really difficult and as long as the income in the area remains so low, um, it'll be a struggle. But we are trying to explore things like that voucher program um, and also ways that we can fund the clinic elsewhere. So we have a, um, an ambulance that operates um, for the whole district. So we charge other clinics to have access to that ambulance and other clinics that are either government funded or privately funded. So that's another income stream. Um, yeah, so in that kind of space, it's about how creative you can be um, really when it comes to funding. And I know that you do have some very creative corporate partnerships. Um, I've seen the past couple of Christmases. I think that there's been a pro you've, you've partnered with a designer and, and uh, the profits from a particular product have gone towards Love Mercy and You've had some really interesting corporate partnerships. Has there been any interest from corporate partners to help 
to fund the hospital or is that sort of not the space that they want to be in? Um, yeah, they have. So we have amazing partners um, called Fortnum who are in the financial advising space um, and they actually came on board really early and one out, were one of our first donors to the clinic. So they also um, are aiming among their partners to fund the wages of a doctor to, to work at the clinic because at the moment we don't have a doctor out there. Um, so there is definitely interest from corporate partners to, to fund that project. It's just about finding the right ones. Um, we're also in really early discussions with another um, corporate partner who were interested in helping us to fund the construction, well, not the construction, but the, the solar power of a maternity ward if we go down that path because at the moment all our maternity services are happening in a temporary renovated space um, and ideally, we'd love to be able to expand to have a standalone maternity ward to kind of meet that growing need. So that will be something that we we look to align with the right partner to fund. Such an exciting few years, I think, you have ahead of you. I'm really looking forward to seeing how these programs continue to unfold. Which brings me to my last question. I want to close by asking, what does success look like for you in five years' time and also in 20 years' time? Wow, that's a great question. Um, to put some context around it, in 2015, we all sat down and went, okay, we've got um, 6,000 women in Sense for Seeds. What do we think the potential is? And as a team, we aligned to the vision of reaching 20,000 women by 2020. Um, our most recent Skype chats with Uganda, everyone's kind of going, oh, my goodness, it's 2019 next year. How did that happen? Um, but we're on track. We're, we've got to 13,800 this year. So for me, success in five years' time would be obviously having reached that 20,000 women by 2020. Um, and beyond that, um, there's no reason, I don't see any reason why we would stop there. So I would love to, in five years' time, have set up Sense for Seeds as a fully self-funding seed bank model I would love to see that in other countries. Like, as I said, we've sort of, we've started in Tanzania. We've had interest from an organisation in Kenya who want to adopt the model. So I would love to see that expand across Africa. Um, and I'd love also to have that fully functioning maternity ward. And if we can land that million dollar question of how we make that health facility um, self-funding as well, um, then I would die happy. But that might be more a, a 20-year goal at this point. <laughs> Long-term goals are great. They, yeah. <laughs> um, they, they sound fantastic. I'm, I'm so inspired. Thank you so much for sharing so much with us and being really honest about, about the challenges that you face oh, and, and all of the successes. I'm so, I'm so grateful to have you here today. So thank you so much, Caitlin. Mm-hmm.